0: Exciting time in the life of our church. Um, I know that you've been hearing me mention this for the past couple weeks, but I know some of you here for the first time. So we're going to talk a little bit about it and why I do. I'm going to pass these uh, while I do. Excuse me. I'm going to pass these baskets around. Um, There's prayer cards and get to know you cards. The yellow or the blue envelopes are are a little bit about our new beginnings campaign that have to do with our new space. So if you haven't picked one of those up yet, please do. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. I don't want to spend a lot of time, because I know a lot of you are like, hey, for the past couple weeks you've been telling us about it, you've been talking about money and all those kind of things. I told you in the very beginning we're going to do this for four weeks. So for four weeks we're going to talk about this new beginnings and our new space and our need to raise some money. And then after that we're done with it. So you're just going to have to kind of bear with it for a few minutes as we kind of talk about it, because it is important and not everybody has been here for the past few weeks. And in order to really do this well with our new space, it's going to take the entire community Um, getting involved together. Um, So let me tell you where we are. For a couple years now, we've been meeting in this place. We've been functioning as an independent church now for about six months, and we have been looking, actually eight months, we've been looking very strongly all over this community for space and I mean it was to the point of being frustrated what we couldn't get in and how difficult things were and how much money things were going to cost and and lo and behold God kind of knew all along where we were and uh, he opened up a space for us most of you have seen the pictures up on Facebook or other places are you driven by on the quarter of 49th and Western the old Iglesia Wellness and Fitness Center we are moving into that space hopefully uh, before October 6th, but no later than October 6th, but our plan is right on that date or the weekend before, we'll let you know as work is uh, kind of going on. We started last Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but a week ago Wednesday doing work. Uh, we were doing all kinds of, of renovations to the space so that we can use it for worship. We're going to be having a series of work days as a church as we all kind of go out there on a Saturday and put some effort into owning the space together. But one of the things that I've been mentioning is that we don't really have much stuff as a church, and we actually really like that. We like not having things. We, everything we have, we can keep in a trailer or where people bring, and so... With that, that, it's been a huge blessing, but it's also been, it's also now a, uh, a series of things that we've got to deal with because in order not only just to renovate the space, we have to come up with the needs that we have for the new space. Chairs and worship equipment and sound equipment and AV equipment and stuff for our kids and all those things cost and so what you've been hearing about for the past couple of weeks is that we are trying in the next four weeks to raise $80,000, which for our small church is a massive amount of money. Well, actually, just a massive amount of money. But for our church especially, because we know that as a church, being small people, we're already leveraging everything we have to make this community work, and we're so grateful for that. But we really believe in the Lord is this what the Lord is doing. And so we thought we'd just throw it out there and see what God did. But it, in order to make that number work, everybody has to be involved no matter how small or how large you can give we're encouraging you to be a part of that there's two ways you can do it one you can give a one-time gift um Or two, you can make a six-month pledge. And that form has uh, both those on there. Now, if you're here for the first time, we really honestly are not talking to you. We do not want you to have to be involved in this. We don't want you to be like, oh, man, I showed up to church for the first day and all that guy does is talk about money. We almost never talk about money. In fact, we don't even pass the plate. We have an offering basket in the back of the room. So if you think we talk about money a lot, we actually really don't. You just happen to come on the few Sundays when we're talking about our need. But really, the need that we have is not for money. The need that we have is for some dollars to renovate a space that we're going to be able to use as a launching point for our mission in the world, a launching point for ministry, not so that we can find a new church home. This isn't our church home. We recognize that the church is the ecclesia. It's the Greek word that means gathering or assembly. You can't go to church and leave church. Church is who we are. When we meet at the Portman's house next week, we will be the church. When we meet at life groups, we are the church. When the guys Bible study meets, they are the church. When the women meet to study, they are the church. We are the church, the gathered people of God. So we're not calling this a church home and a place we're going to be. It's temporary anyway. We know that. But what we want to do is be able to use it as a launching point to dive headlong into our mission in the community. And we've been talking about our mission because at times like this, it's real important that we rally around the things that unite us. Because we are a community that's made up of very different people, right? I mentioned last week we have different thoughts on, on politics and different thoughts on music and different thoughts on sports and all that kind of stuff. But what unites us as a church is our common mission we've been articulating that mission uh, over the past couple weeks and it's really simple it's very noble and I want everyone in our community to understand it and know it and know with clarity what it means and that's to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one to the city and to the world And over the next weeks we're gonna be unpacking each of those six statements that are sort of buried in that mission now you know that we have values As a church, we're worship-driven and community-minded and missionally focused. On everything we do, we talk about it. We know that we have an approach to how we want to live those things out, love God, love people, and follow Jesus. But our mission is what defines us. It's what we rally around. It's our purpose for existing. And so the past couple weeks, I've kind of been launching into that. And this week's the same way. We're going to pick up the next statement of that mission and really talk about what it means um, to live that out together. Now, last week, I unpacked that first statement, which is, what does it mean to love much? And just by way of very short recap, what we discovered was this. We took a look at the story of the, the prostitute, the woman who was living a sinful life in the town, is what they, claimed, what they called her in that scripture. And how she took her jar of perfume and, and she found Jesus reclining at the Pharisee's house after eating dinner. And she fell at his feet and dumped perfume on it and began to weep right crying and and her tears were being shed on his feet and she began to wipe them with her hair and how the pharisees and the people in the room were just appalled that this this woman this prostitute this sinful person was laying at the feet of jesus crying over his feet and touching him making him unclean and then we know that jesus had that encounter where he looks at the pharisees and he talks about this woman's sins being forgiven and how she is loved much And we really unpack that to point out two things about what it means to love much. One, the first thing is that loving much begins with understanding who you really are, who I really am, that we are all, and I called us all prostitutes last week, and I know everyone was kind of like talking about it, but the truth is it's true, right? You're a prostitute. I'm a prostitute. Maybe it's not physically in terms of that adultery aspect, but we sell ourselves away from God's call in our life all the time. We are sinful people, right? That we are broken, sinful people. And that we are only redeemed by the love of God. And what we saw in that woman last week was passion. That in all of her sinfulness, when she came in the presence of, of Jesus, of God's son, all she could do was follow at his feet and lay out everything that she had. And for her, that jar of perfume. And as she weeps over her own life and her own sinfulness and dries Jesus' feet with her tears, we talked about the passion that comes from really truly loving. And, and loving does not mean do more, go more, give more. Loving means understanding who you are in Jesus Christ and overflowing with a passion because of what Jesus has done for you. See, loving much is about abundance. It's about extravagance. It's about the love that Jesus had for us. Well, loving well, right, is actually different. It's, it's a similar concept, but it's really different, and that's why we have them both on our mission to love much with extravagance and abundance, understanding who we are in Jesus. Broken, sinful people, redeemed by the grace of God, called to lavish and extravagantly that love on the world, right? To love much, just with great extravagance, the way Jesus loved us, and all of our sinfulness just died for us, gave his life. Loving well actually has to do with one word, and that word is intentionality. While it stems from the place of the love that was poured out for us through Christ on the cross, it's actually a different way of loving. It's loving with great intention. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Luke, all right? And I've got a lot I want to try and do, but we're going to look at the book of Luke, and I'm going to cram it all in there. Um, Because loving with intention is really hard, all right? Loving with intention is hard. We love out of convenience. And when it is convenient, we love well. But when it's inconvenient, it's really difficult to love the way the Bible tells us to love. And part of being a follower of Christ and living in church and living in community is understanding that in the good and the bad and the easy and the hard, I am called to love well the way that God loved me and to do it with great intention. So we're going to be taking a look at that in the book of Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at a really famous parable that you guys are familiar with, probably it's more familiar with, uh, or we're more familiar with because of its name than we actually are with all the things that happened inside that little parable and in interaction as we look at Luke chapter 10 and we talk about the parable of the good Samaritan. All right, and we're going to look at it from a different angle. I know you're going, I've heard it, you know, guy falls down, you, you got to take care of him. That's not really what we're talking about. So we're going to unpack it from a different angle as we look at what it really means to love well. So let's take a moment, let's pray before we open God's word so that we can actually ask the Holy Spirit to reveal teaching and truth to us this morning. So let's pray. Lord. we have a lot going on, um, and a lot of exciting things, and Lord, we could talk about uh, the excitement and stuff going on in life of this church all morning. But, Father, your word is what's central. And so, Father, apart from all those things and, and you're blessing us with new spaces and, and our need to put things in those spaces so that we can do mission and, and ministry and children's ministry well, Lord, is, is your word. It stands alone. It's, Father, central to what we do when we gather here as we open your word. Because we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, that it is worship. And so, Father, we are not taking your word this morning and applying it to our situation so that we can think about what church looks like. We're not proof texting so that we can find verses that help support Treb's call for the church to give more money. That's not what we're doing at all. Instead, we we're, we're read your word and we change our lives because of it. God, we read your word and it impacts us in such a way that we can never remain the same. Father, our mission and our heartbeat exists because your word directs us. We don't apply your word to our thinking father your word sh- changes and shapes our thinking it alters our lives and so this morning god we ask that your word would be the rock upon which you break us take a moment and just pray in your own heart ask god to move in you this morning just to to do something fresh in you Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, or around you, just as we always say, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we pray that as we read this very familiar parable this morning, you would give us new eyes to see it with. Penetrate our hearts, teach us through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the life-giving name of Jesus. Amen. So the question we're framing this parable with this morning is, what does it really mean to love well? It's a question we looked at last week. What does it mean to love much? This morning we're talking about what it means to love well. Very familiar parable, but let's take a look at it through a different set of of lenses this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have incurred. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Super familiar parable. Right, we hear the uh, idea of the Good Samaritan in all kinds of secular context as well as church context. It's a very familiar story and familiar term. Right, Good Samaritan sort of has this picture of doing things for other people, being the person that goes outside of of you know what's convenient and taking care of or loving people, right? That's how we understand this parable. And there's there's truth in there, but this parable is actually much deeper, and you have to look at the whole interaction that's taking place from the beginning, in, beginning to the end with this expert of the law and Jesus to understand really what's happening here. Now, we know this because we've talked about it so often, and that's that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were always trying to trap Jesus. They always wanted to catch him in some kind of juxtaposition. They wanted to catch him speaking against the law, or they wanted to catch him in a trap so they could do one of two things, either arrest him or at very least embarrass him. Because Jesus was teaching things that were totally radical, and it was threatening the very way of life of the religious leaders. So the religious leaders wanted any moment that they could to try and capture or trap or ensnare Jesus in his own words, embarrass him in front of the people, help him lose credibility or possibly even arrest him. This is Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees all the time. So all the time we see them trying to trap him. And here, really, some, it's very similar to what's being taken place all through Scripture when it comes to Jesus and his relationship with the Pharisees. Says so as an expert in the law, which most likely is a scribe, right, scribes were the ones that they wrote and kept the law, right? The Pharisees kind of created the oral tradition, the scribes kept it, they wrote it, they had the scrolls, almost all scribes were Pharisees, all right? So... They were the ones that knew this stuff backwards and forwards. They kept the scrolls. And the Pharisees, well, they took the law and they added their own interpretations to it. And it was called the oral tradition. And they held that the oral tradition that they created was on par or equal with the law. So the law would say things like, you know, rest on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees would then take that and they would explain it out to the you know, 20th, 30th, 50th degree, talking about what rest meant. You could tie this kind of knot, but you couldn't tie that kind of knot. You could walk so many steps that you couldn't walk one more. You could give water to your donkey, but you couldn't carry water back to your house. I mean, they had this whole thing laid out. The scribes were in charge of keeping all that written down so that everybody knew what was being added. So they knew this stuff well. It's why, that's why Luke refers to him as an expert in the law. So he asks a question, a very common question that a lot of those religious leaders were asking and they like to debate about, which is, what is eternal life and basically how does somebody inherit it? So how do one, how does one inherit eternal life? It wasn't an uncommon question, but we know that it was a loaded question because the expert of the law, right, knows the answer. He even gives the answer to Jesus when Jesus turns the question back around on him. He's, he's not looking for the real kind of what is eternal eternal life, and how do I gain it? But he's trying to trap Jesus, to get him to say something that would be contrary to the law. So he looks at Jesus and he says, teacher, I've got a question for you. How does one inherit eternal life? And in a way that only Jesus does really well is he he shifts that back onto the the expert, the scribe, right? Because Jesus knows in in his infinite wisdom that something much deeper is at play here in the life of this man. And, And he says, okay, well, you tell me, what does the law say, Mr. Expert of the Law? And more so, how do you read it? Right? So the expert thinks about it for a moment and says, says this, well, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now these are very familiar words to us because we know that Jesus uses them in the book of Matthew to actually respond to a very similar question that the Pharisees are trying to trap him with. When they say, teacher, what's the greatest commandment, Right? Because there was no great commandment, one that was better than the other. They were talking about the ten, and of course Jesus turns it around and says, actually the, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which is really two different pieces of Old Testament scripture. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, comes from a Hebrew liturgical prayer in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hebrew word called the Shema, right, as a prayer. And basically it said this, O hero Israel, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your strength. Right? And it was a, a way of reminding Israel that everything that they had, their heart, the way that they thought, the way that they lived, should be directed at loving God. Well, the second part of that comes out of the book of Leviticus, and it was actually a, a kind of a, a law piece added later that says, Don't be angry and don't hold grudges, but instead treat other people as you treat yourself. Well, Jesus had combined those two things back in Luke, and the Pharisee really here described as the same thing. Maybe he, he had heard Jesus say it at some other time or, or whatever, but basically he says that exact same thing. Well, this is how you inherit eternal life. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replies to him, that's right. That's right, all right? You've done right. Go and do that, and you'll inherit eternal life. And then we read Luke say, but but the Pharisee wasn't done yet. The scribe wasn't done yet. He actually wanted to justify himself, which is what the law keepers really wanted to do. They wanted to know, how do I keep the letter of the law without actually having to do more than I need to? All right, what's the bare minimum? So, of course, in order to justify himself, he says, now, who is my neighbor? In other words, what he's saying is, I get that I love you. I love the Lord, your God, that's fine, I do that really well. He said, but that neighbor piece, tell me who that is so that I can do just that much and not anything else. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus answers that question with this really famous parable, right? And he says there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem was a hit, uh, city built on a hill. It was actually built on a mountain, about 2,300 f- uh, feet above sea level. Jericho was 20 miles away, and it was down by the Dead Sea, and it was about 1,300 feet below sea level, so quite a variation, you know, 3,500-ish, 3,600 uh, feet of elevation change over about 20 miles, and it goes down to the mountains, and it's all kinds of, of turns, and it was a really notorious road, because everybody had to travel it, but there were a lot of places that robbers and bandits could hide, and a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and sure enough, traveling by himself, he gets jumped in Jesus' story, at least, by a bunch of robbers. And they beat him, and they strip him naked, and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. Wouldn't be an uncommon scene. Jesus says, and then some people started coming by, right? Story we know very well, a priest. There were a lot of priests. There were a lot of priests. In fact, the role of the priest was to carry out this sort of uh, ritual worship life of Israel. And they served about two weeks a year, and most of the time they lived in other little surrounding cities. So they'd come up to Jerusalem, serve their time in the temple and they'd make their way back down to wherever they're from. So it wouldn't be uncommon all, at all to have a priest making his way back down from Jerusalem, most likely after he had uh, um, either helped out in worship or going up to worship, either way. So a priest comes by, religious leader, worship leader um, comes by, and, and he says that he sees the man, half naked, beaten, bleeding to death on the side of the road, and he crosses over to the other side, keeps walking. Jesus goes on to say, and then a Levite comes by. Now, I wish I had a little bit more time, I'd I'd really give you a a good explanation of the difference between a priest and a Levite, because it is kind of important, but here's a $2 version, and that is, there were 12 tribes in Israel in the Old Testament, one of those tribes was the tribe of the Levites. They were set aside as the tribe that took care of all the priestly duties, taking care of the worship life of Israel, they took care of the ark, they took care of the tabernacle, they took care of the the temple once it was built. That was the, the, the Levites. Inside that line of uh, the Levites, inside that tribe, was a line of a guy by the name of Aaron. And Aaron's family was appointed to be the ones that would do the sacrificing, really taking care of the, the deep spiritual issues that took place in the life of Israel. Now, the line of Aaron, they became the priests, all right? And all other lines in the Levites became Levites. They became helpers, if you will. So you've got all of them part of the worship life, right, but the priests were kind of the ones that took care of the deep things, like going into the Holy of Holies this is where a lot of the chief priests came from they were the ones that took care of the intricacies of the life, and the Levites were anyone that was not from Aaron's family, but was in the tribe of the Levites, and they were the worship kind of guardians, helpers, protectors basically what Jesus is saying is that two of the most important people in your entire religious culture, Mr. Scribe, right the priests and the Levites came by and they both did the exact same thing, they saw the man and they walked on the other side of the road. Probably a lot of reasons for this. If they touched this guy, right? With all of his bleeding and nakedness, they'd be unclean. In other words, they would not be fit to lead worship for Israel. So probably a lot of reasons why. Plus, a lot of times you'd find someone on the side of the road and it would be a trap, you know? They uh, stranded, you know, whatever, and you go over there and then the robbers would jump out and, uh, and, and, and and you know, kind of beat you up too. We, we learned this from the movie Dumb and Dumber. You remember the guy on the side of the road and they go by and the big shaggy dog and sure enough, it broke down and he jumps in the car. Remember that? So we learned that from that movie. But, <laughs> That's kind of, there's all those kind of things, those kind of realities. But all that to get to the fact that a Samaritan comes by. Another $2 lesson. We know a lot about the Samaritans. We know the Jewish people hated them. They hated them because they were a mixed race. When the Assyrians moved in from the north, conquered Israel, they hauled everybody off, right? They took them into exile. Well, the the Samaritans are a race of people that broke God's law and intermarried with the Assyrians. So they're Jewish people that intermarried with the Assyrians and had children and they became the Samaritans and everybody hated them because the Jewish people wanted a clean bloodline and the Samaritans were mixed, and no one would even walked to their country. That's why in John chapter 4, it's really significant when Jesus goes through Samaria, because no one would go through Samaria to meet the woman at the well. Well, Samaritan, right, which would have been appalling to the expert of the law, that the priest and the Levite didn't do it right, and the Samaritan, who is a lower-class citizen, sees the man, just like the other two, had compassion on him, stops, bandages his wounds, pours on oil and wine, which apparently is like magic, pours on oil and wine and... Heals him up with some, uh, some oil and wine. Put him on his own donkey. Takes him to an inn. And then we know the rest of the story. Um, gives the innkeeper some silver coins. Says, take care of him. I'm going to return and pay you back for whatever kind of expenses you had. Jesus looks at this expert and says, who's the neighbor? Of course, the expert has only one answer. And he says, right, it's the Samaritan. And he says, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, all of that because we got to get back to our original question, which is what does it really mean to love well, right? And it's actually a really interesting question, because if loving much is about kind of extravagance and abundance and understanding who we are and living with passion the same way that Christ loved us, then loving well means living with intention. in order to really understand that, we have to understand how this interaction started. The expert of the law looks at Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because loving well does not actually mean loving people well. It doesn't start there. It doesn't actually mean that we care for people that are broken and hurt and bleeding on the side of the road or are needy. That's not where loving well begins. Loving well, much like loving much, begins with a different understanding. It begins with an understanding that Jesus kind of points this expert of the law back to with this question. What does it mean to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. Now this poses a really difficult thing for most of us because the reality is is that we don't know how to love God that way. We don't. The truth is you and I have no idea how to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. You know why? Because the Bible tells us that we don't understand love apart from God. We know love because God first loved us. Which means if we're trying to understand what it means to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul, we will never understand what that really means. But how we come to understand what love means is by understanding what Christ did for us. Romans 5.8, we learn that while we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us. See, in God's perfect plan for us, he sent his son Jesus as the picture of what love looks like. Sacrificial love. Extravagant love. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind? We only can know that based on what Christ did for us. And think about what Christ did for your broken, sinful, messed up life, like we talked about last week. The fact that we're all just a bunch of prostitutes that have traded the truth of God for a lie. And how God in his extravagant mercy, and grace lavished his love through Jesus Christ out on us. See, loving God begins by understanding much like loving much, what Christ did for us. And then saying, God, I want my whole life, everything about it, to be about loving you. The way that I think, the way that I act, the way that I live, my heart, everything inside of me, my strength, every fiber of my being, I want to be about your love and your glory. See, God is an afterthought for a lot of us, or at least a second thought at very best. Most of us are so geared around pleasing ourselves and chasing our own means, and our own gains, and our own ends, that loving God becomes something that we supplement our lives with. So God, as I pursue my career, I will love you along the way. As I take care of my needs, I will bring you along with me. I will ask you to bless me and do this, and God, I will love you the best way I can while I pursue my own agenda, while I pursue my own agenda. But really loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength means that Everything in our power, our energy, our life, our breathing begins with loving God. Which means, God, I don't want to do a thing for anyone else before I love you. Much like, or a lot like loving much, loving well does not mean loving more, doing more. But it begins by saying, God, I want my whole life and everything in it to be about your love and your glory first and foremost. Above my family, above my career, above my desire for things, I want my life to be about your glory. Because of the love that was demonstrated to me through Jesus Christ. Whenever I do weddings... I always look at the husband and, and this wife as they're talking to each other and, and I basically say the same thing in a lot of these weddings and every single one of them I say, the reason we understand love is not because it's a human invention. It's not because we created it or some kind of emotion but it's because that love was demonstrated to us. We love because God first loved us. In other words, you can't love your husband or your wife without understanding what Christ did for you. You'll never do it. Never do it well. We love because it was demonstrated to us. The first part of loving well is not saying, okay, I'm going to love my wife well, even though she's hard to love sometimes, or I'm going to love the people in my life that are hard. I'm going to love that guy on the corner because God tells me to. Loving well begins by saying, God, I want to love you first with everything that I have. You get my resources, my life, my money, my family, my kids, my career, my heart. Everything about me needs to be for your glory. All my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, every fiber of my being, right? It's for your love and your glory, period. Everything ends and begins there. Then both Jesus and Matthew 22, when he says, what's the first and greatest commandment, follows it up with that second part, and so does this expert of the law. But only after both declare that the chief kind of reason we exist is to love God. Both say, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's how we get into this parable. And real quickly, for the sake of time, what I want you to see about this parable is not so much how the Samaritan really did nice things for this person, but I want you to see a few things that I think jump out in the text, and that is all three of these guys, the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, they all saw the man, right? Every one of them had their eyes open. They saw this man broken and bleeding and dying on the side of the road. As I was really looking at this text, I was super convicted of my own life because I really think I live a lot of my life with my head down. Right? I'm just focused on getting from one thing to another. I've got to run from this meeting to that meeting to meet this person, to race over to football practice for Coop, to get Haley ready for bed, do all these things, whatever it takes. We're just, My head is down. And I think a lot of us live that way. We go from place to place to thing to thing, focused on the tasks at hand because those are important things. But we don't open our eyes to really see. Really see. And I'm not talking about physically seeing just that person that's broken or hurting, but really listening to the needs of other people. The people that we work with, listening to the old, old the cry of your own spouse, right? What your children are saying to you, what your coworkers are saying. Most of us exist and never see the half-dead guy sitting in the office next to us. Most of us exist and never hear the cry of the mom that's on our PTO committee whose marriage is falling apart. We just see another volunteer. Part of the challenge of loving well is about intentionality. After we say, God, I want to intentionally love you with everything that I am, heart, soul, mind, and strength, I want to intentionally open my eyes. I want to begin to look differently at the people around me. I'm not just talking about broken, poor people, right? I'm talking about every person that crosses our paths. Am I looking at their life? Am I opening my eyes? Do you know that anytime somebody asks you a spiritual question, We know from scripture that God is prompting them because only God draws men unto himself. People aren't discovering God on their own. So when someone asks you something about church, about your faith, about God, they are being prompted by God. Stop everything that you're doing and talk to them. Because it's an invitation of the Holy Spirit. Open your eyes. Live with your eyes open. The second thing I see is soften your heart. So notice, the priest and the Levite, what do they do? They just... Walk to the other side of the road, right? But the Samaritan says it took pity, really translates better from the Greek, as had compassion or mercy on him. So the Samaritan couldn't help it. He's walking down the road and he has compassion on this dying man. I think a lot of us have calloused our hearts to the hurt and pain of other people. Both people that we know and we love, that estranged brother, that father, whatever, that person that has stabbed us in the back, and or even that kind of class of people that we see standing on the side of the road. We live with calloused hearts because most of the time those issues are worlds away. But see, the things that break the heart of God, as people that love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, should break our heart. It should break our heart that Oklahoma City is one of the largest uh, human trafficking corridors in the entire country. Between I-35 and I-40 and I-44, right here, we have one of the largest, largest corridors of human sex trafficking in the country. It should break our heart. It should also break our heart that one out of every five children in our very city will go to bed hungry. It should break our heart that 10,000 children will die just today while we're in worship because of lack of access to clean water. But those things are worlds away it doesn't affect me out of sight out of mind part of what living as a follower of Christ is God softened my heart not just for those big global things but also for that guy next to me for the woman I'm sitting next to at the Starbucks who's just softly crying by herself or looks like she's hurting soften my heart so open your eyes ask God to soften your heart loving well living with loving with intention means softening our heart act on love Both, everybody acts in this story, right? The Levite acts, he walks to the side of the road. The priest acts, he walks to the side of the road. But the Samaritan acts differently. Act. Act on love. Do something crazy. Interrupt that person next to you at the office and tell them you've been hearing them talking, you just wanted to ask a few more questions. Act on love. Do something. If you hear somebody say they have a need, step in the middle and see if you can't take care of it. You don't have to take credit. Just do it. I used to have a guy in my life, a mentor who I love dearly, who did this um, just amazingly well and it always blow me away, but he would hear somebody in our community that we were part of say, you know, I'm struggling with this or I lost my job or food and he would go to your house and you wouldn't even know it and you'd go home and show up and there'd be bags of groceries on your front porch. You know? One time I made a comment to him that I really liked his shirt. I was back in college. I was like, that's an awesome shirt. Next thing I know, it was folded up on my pillow. I mean, Act on love. Those are tiny, small things. But find a way to act on love. If God gives you a soft place for someone in your heart, there's probably a reason for it. Act on it. Right? And then finally, care enough to come back. What does the Samaritan do? He leaves him at the inn, but he looks at the innkeeper and he says, I'm coming back. All right? Take care of him all. One of the great things about loving with intention for me is when you tell somebody you care about them, when you tell them you're going to pray for them, when you tell them that you're interested in their lives, care enough to circle back around. Learn their name. Stick your head back in their office two days later and go, hey, you know, I told you I would pray for your, your dad. I just, I'm kind of curious how he's doing. These are small things that intentionally demonstrate the way that you love people. If you tell somebody that you're going to do something in their life, be a man or woman enough to follow it up. Do it. Loving well means loving with intention. God, you get my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything about me is for you, period. Before anything else ever begins, before I ever try and love anyone, God, I want to love you. I want to open my eyes to see the world. I want to see the half-dead person next to me, physically and spiritually. I want my heart to be soft. I don't want to be callous anymore. I don't want to look at the guy and say, we should just get a job. God, I want you to soften my heart, and I want to act on love, because that's how you acted for me. And finally, I want to care enough to show people that I'll come back. I want to circle back around and tell people how much I love them. I want to come back to that same person that maybe I dropped clothes off for, or maybe I gave money to, and I learned their name and use their name next time I see them. I want to go through the same line at the grocery store, the same bank teller, because I want her or him to know I care about them. See, loving much is about extravagance and abundance, and loving well is about intentionality. Both begin with understanding who we are in Jesus Christ and loving God with everything that we have. But they're both very different ways that we play out that love. When I say that we're a community that wants to love much, extravagance and abundance, and love well with intentionality, this is what we mean. So Jesus, to wrap all this up, looks at the the teacher of the law, the expert, and he says, uh, who's the neighbor? And he says, well, of course the one that took care of his needs and bandaged his wounds. Jesus said, you're right. And then he looks at that guy and he says this, go and do likewise. You know what that says to me? This isn't just some fun teaching parable where Jesus was like, gotcha. But he was like, live this way. See, we treat the parables as like stories that we use and go, oh, that's really good. I learned a little something. No, Jesus is actually saying, this should be how you live. It should break your normal cycles of life, and this should be what your life looks like. So if your life doesn't look this way, figure out why. God, I want to love you with everything that I have, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Open my eyes, soften my heart, help me act on love, and care enough to come back. As a community, we want to love well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these moments and all that to get to the point where we are called, Lord, to love like you. So often as a church, we put all of our emphasis on loving people, right, and loving the best that we can, and we forget that first and foremost, we are called to love you, to recognize who we are, our own needs in Jesus Christ. Everything begins and ends with you. We can only love because you demonstrate it that way, because you empower us to do so. God, we'll never develop compassion for someone who's broken without understanding the compassion that you have for us. We'll never be able to love someone through their own need until we understand how needy we are. We'll never understand, Father, someone else's need for rescue until we truly understand how you rescued us through Jesus Christ. Love begins in those places. It begins by knowing who we really are. Sinful, broken, people in need of rescue. (laughs) Called to love the Lord, our God, our God, with all of our heart and soul, and mind, and strength. And only out of those places does loving other people really begin. Lord, convict us as a church and challenge us, and even as individuals, challenge us on who we need to love this week. Soften our hearts, help us see well, act on love, God, do all those things. If there is someone, God, that we need to circle around with, I pray that we would. If it's been two weeks since we've followed up with someone and we made that phone call, we talked, we've done whatever, whatever it is, God, Challenge us to live intentionally and to love intentionally. We pray that we would go from this place empowered to live differently because of the love you've poured out on us, that we would be a church, a group of followers of Christ who loved much and loved well. Let's stand together this morning.